Hi guys and welcome back to the Building Financial Fitness Podcast. So today we have back with us again a very special guest and also because you were my primary school teacher when I was in Downland School. Welcome back, Mr. Choi. Thank you so much. Yeah, glad to be back as well. First of all, you are publishing your new book, yes. The Delete Approach, which we'll talk about later. But I wanted to have you on to talk about um, career pathways for young people. Because right now, you know, we're in the thick of, you know, hearing, let's say, news like layoffs in the market, like Grab. June this year, they laid off over a thousand people, which was 11% of their workforce. At the same time, when they were, I think, investing in AI. And recently, during Switch in Singapore, I'm Gary from Y Combinator was also here and he was saying that 8 out of 10 of the pitches that he was hearing from entrepreneurs is all around AI, Gen AI and you know how to best automate tasks. And when I was speaking to a few people in the audience, there was that growing concern, right? Of like, you know, what do we upskill for as young adults? What do we upskill for as, you know, when we think about ourselves as parents, you know, what do we want to teach our kids to be proficient at? You know, it kind of begs a lot of these kinds of questions. So I kind of wanted to get you on, given that, you know, you've been in this space a long time and you, you work in adult education as well. And, you know, what's your, first of all, overarching thoughts with regards to this whole market dynamic? It's actually quite a very complex question. Part of it has to do with uh, no one really can see into the future. What is happening in Singapore in particular uh, is that because we are such a small country, a reasonably small workforce as well, to some extent, actually, we do have the possibility of selecting Mm. Uh, jobs that would fit our workforce, the needs of our workforce, as well as also some of our aspirations, right? So, so we are in a in a in a very good position to do a little bit of that selection process, right? So, whether individually or whether as a country. So, having said that as well, uh, we do see quite a fair bit of churn in the space. I think AI is growing very, very fast. ChatGPT4, uh, I think in the recent, um, just one, two weeks, right, OpenAI actually released uh, new developments with that and it's going to be really exciting. They have actually merged daily with uh, GPT itself and mm. so on. So it's multimodal. And on that note also, you know, it starts to, uh, we start to wonder whether ChatGPT has become almost like a semi-human, right, able to do some of these jobs uh, in a more holistic and integrated manner. Mm. So having said that, it also means that uh, for those of us who are, you know, very, very deeply skilled in the technical areas, right, we do need to have a second think about where we want to go and what are some of those jobs that still remain? Hmm. I think that's, a, that's the big question. Yeah, I think I wanted to, you know, mention something that Sam Altman said when he was in Singapore. He sort of had this tour in Asia, right? Singapore was one of the pit stops. I think Startup SG hosted that event. I mean, first of all, there were a lot of entrepreneurs who kind of like pitching their own AI companies. But beyond that, he was also addressing the, the elephant in the room, right? Where people ask again the same question of, you know, are we slowly or very quickly being made obsolete? And the way he said it is like, AI is an enabler for us to do higher level jobs. But, you know, when we had that conversation, like prior to recording, people often think that it's like the lower skilled jobs, the one where it's like repeated tasks, those are the jobs that can be automated. But you raise an interesting point of it's not actually really that kind of jobs, but at the higher levels, it also can be affected as well. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. 
Uh, actually, Sam uh, Altman is, is correct, right? So AI is an enabler. So what happens is that there are other people who replace us. Mm. So that's the thing is people replacing people, right? And, and also what that means is that uh, in the past, maybe someone, you know, maybe a particular uh, job role in a particular organization may, may have five headcounts at that level. But going forward with AI as an enabler, you now only need uh, three headcounts, for mm. example. Then what happens is this, that um, those who are able to overcome that digital divide, right, able to use um, AI as a, what they call it, enabler or tool, uh, now can do more jobs uh, within the same period of time, right? Mm-hmm. Then also a bigger question before I address your question is that whether you consider uh, in this particular case of AI to be just a tool or whether downstream it becomes a persona, Hmm. Okay, what does that mean, right? Because you have heard of stories where, you know, even in the case of a Japanese man marrying a virtual influencer or virtual, hmm. you know, reality kind of persona, right? Mm-hmm. And, um, and some of us have grown quite attached to our Siri or, or Alexa, right? Every time we call, of course, you know, start of having Alexa tell interesting jokes and so on. But you can almost imagine, right, uh, downstream ChatGPT becoming a persona, you know, whatever names you want to call your own uh, customized uh, ChatGPT. Mm. And then with that, it becomes difficult sometimes to differentiate right a tool from a persona. That's one. Number two is that the potential of a persona influencing us in terms of our viewpoints, our assumptions, and more so our beliefs going forward. Mm. Right. Those who are a little older, uh, obviously, we still see some of this as tools because, you know, it's not kind of part of our culture, part of our entire routine and so on. But for those who are much younger, they would be growing up with all these uh, quote-unquote tools. It will be part of them, part of their lives, part of their identity. So going back to your question, what's been interesting is that Institute for Adult Learning, uh, part of SUSS, just released a study about a week ago. It was actually conducted by experts from Cardiff University, Oxford Universities, um, and, and you know several other universities. Mm. Um, and they actually uh, looked at uh, digital futures of work, meaning that um, they look at the workforce and how AI is impacting changing jobs mm. in many countries. So in Korea, in Sweden, Finland, Singapore, US, and so on for example. What they found was really interesting. Firstly, is that uh, the obvious would be in economies that are not yet adopting AI and maybe not so forward-looking, automation will be the key factor. So mm. automation will probably replace quite a lot of the low-level, low-skill jobs, right? For example, in manufacturing and so on. So all these are repetitive tasks. So that's, you know, kind of uh, taken, right? Yeah. But what is also found was that in economies like Singapore, where AI is, um, is pretty advanced, right, then there's the notion of job scarcity. So earlier, the, the earlier scenario would be labor scarcity. But here we have job scarcity because AI will likely take on uh, or take over some of those jobs, right? Or at least people who can use AI will then take over some of those jobs. Mm. So with a highly skilled workforce, actually that becomes an issue because where do the people with uh, all those skills go? Mm. Right, and and that's where it is. But what was even more interesting was those in the middle, those people who are occupying, let's say, like um, middle management roles. Uh, for example, just earlier when we talked about a few different roles, right? Let's say people who run events or people who are doing quality checks, compliance, and so on. Yeah, I think like that we talked about middle manager roles, kind of being a lot of it centered around coordination, right? Let's say a project manager in an organization, they would need to kind of like reach across an organization across various fun- functions, and sometimes you sort of need 
that human touch to be able to make sense of those human relationships and how best you can get teams to be functional to work together. So I think that there will still be space for that kind of role. Absolutely. Yeah. Essentially, the coordinators or uh, sometimes you call them connectors, right? Mm. And so they connect people to people to people, right? And so you may be connecting to vendors, connecting to critical internal stakeholders or external stakeholders, even government bodies and all that. So at that level, actually, this person is critical and uh, also this person is expected to solve complex problems in the jobs, right? Mm. So you're not talking about simple problems or complex problems. And so uh, actually at that level, the middle managers right, actually are critical and likely so their jobs remain quite safe because you know those people right at the top I'm not going to go around running around you know trying to organize different events and do all this kind of coordination work right? it's too high mm. uh, too low level for me right for example and obviously those who are at very very low level they probably don't have that capability to do that mm. so once again at the very low level uh, automation will probably take over some of the jobs at very high levels unless you're involved in uh, human related kind of job roles like sales we talked mm-hmm. about sales earlier on then you likely remain in that job role because you are a revenue generator mm. but otherwise if you are back end and so on then there's a high risk that um, some of those jobs especially they're high cost right mm. there's huge impetus for organizations to want to trim those costs mm. down using AI or uh, people who can uh, work remotely right in other countries who are low cost that's where it is so what's an example of a high tier job that would be rep- Placed by AI because the example that I raised just now was you know if we look at law firms consulting firms big four partners they always have sales responsibilities they always need to hit certain targets so if we think about more high earning roles in at a partner level because they have sales responsibility that involves human relationships it probably low likelihood of them being ousted or kind of re- being replaced. But what would be examples of the high earning roles that actually can be replaced? Well, that's a tough question, right? And uh, I really don't want to shoot myself in the foot subsequently, right? Because I can't do a lot of crystal ball gazing. But having said that, you do see some possibilities, especially if, let's say, for example, HR director, mm. right? HR usually sounds like very people-oriented, but actually if you look at the job, right, very often you see a lot of very, very back-end kind of administrative tasks as well, right? Approvals of stuff and all that. Mm. Um, then maybe even to some extent uh, compliance, if it's uh, very technical and very routine mm. kind of work. Uh, obviously, there, there is still a need for director for compliance, obviously, but uh, you'll see then um, it's going to be a very flat hierarchy, I would imagine, mm. as well. Yeah. Then whether ICT itself, whether you need as many programmers, uh, obviously those um, may not be considered very, very high-end, but still uh, you'll see some of those being also replaced by AI. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I can see that as well. I mean, especially you like you mentioned compliance, and even in the finance part of it, a lot of it is like Excel works, kind of like putting reports together on a monthly basis. And the people I know in the finance sector, they are very adept at being able to pull those reports on a monthly basis. Um, and that's on the baseline. I can imagine that AI tools would help them do that to free themselves up for the higher level things of how do we think about budgeting strategically or how do we project our revenues or you know higher order kind of things but because of the automation of certain tasks if we look at a finance team within a let's say a mid-sized company we can say that you know it is probably expected that you would maybe need lower headcount 
So you mentioned some of the very key tasks, like for example, uh, strategic thinking, planning, innovating, putting out maybe new products or bringing in um, more innovative uh, solutions for the organization. So you streamline uh, some of the processes further. Uh, I can also imagine pitching internally, like you know, trying to sell ideas to your key stakeholders, management, and all that. Mm. Uh, I think those would be the critical tasks that the uh, very high level kind of uh, whether director level or partner level will have to do more so Mm. yeah let's say for people who are listening in choosing what vocation they want to work in you know when we go to university you often have to make a choice right and last time accounting was like like people would yes. want to go for that they think it's a uh, stable or they'll go for like certain school of computing school of accounting things like that and and we look at the next 10 years right and we think about what kind of jobs would still require that human touch or would not be made obsolete by AI you know what are the what are the different sectors so like the first that comes to mind obviously is jobs that require a high level of human touch and empathy and being able to deal with people is a lot of it is in healthcare, especially from the healthcare services perspective, like nurses, for example. Because even if we look at surgeons, this is not AI, but you know, some of it's been already being replaced by robotics. That's right, yeah. Um, healthcare, education, even insurance to some extent, but those who are in the sales line, right? Mm. So then definitely there's a bit of a high touch there. Mm. Um and in effect, right, it's right across all sectors, actually. All sectors will be affected mm. um, on this note with the the advancing uh, technologies and so on. You have to then tease out or extract uh, those that um, require human uh, contact, right? So, which also means that we have to develop our own emotional quotient or emotional intelligence or creativity, as well as also, interestingly, physical dexterity, right? So, I know mm. on that note, it may not be like human thing, but actually even robotics and so on may not be able to do very very fine motor skills at least mm. not in certain kind of environments and so on so so uh so those are things even if we say right um you know i'm not that kind of extroverted person i'm quite introvert mm. well times have changed we need <laughs> to change and um it's a good idea to grow those skills it's not easy in fact i mean personally i'm, I'm an introvert but i have uh grown over the years to kind of tune myself into a certain persona, hmm. right? Such that I can, if I want to uh, be a little bit more energetic, yeah, a bit more extroverted, even though that's not quite me. Hmm. Um, and, and that helps a lot. That gets hmm. the job done. Like for me, when I think about that human relationships, right? It's not necessarily introversion versus extroversion, but just being able to have a good level of empathy for those around you. And you don't necessarily need to be extroverted to be empathetic, or you could be an introvert. I think, actually, I think that sometimes introverts are more empathetic. They kind of think things through. I'm not, you know, I'm not a MBTI expert here, but then, you know, I think for me, those are two different concepts where Yes, I mean, if you're, if you know, if you're an introvert, you still, I mean, you still can develop that level of empathy. You're absolutely right. So, uh, we do need to uh, differentiate the two. I would say that the extroversion, introversion kind of uh, spectrum, right, will also be more relevant for people who want to engage with people, right? So, those who are introverted, you, you get your energy kind of, you know, uh, with it down quite quickly when you interact with people, right? But mm. uh, essentially, uh, but empathy actually, I would say you, you'll be able to find in both groups, right? Whether mm. you're introverted or extroverted, it's, it's probably a, a slightly different kind of dimension as mm. well. 
Um, so we need to grow those skills, the ability to then relate to people and also resolve conflicts, right? Um, mm. We do find that especially for uh, many of us who are getting into the career, into, you know, building up their career, right? Um, managing or handling conflicts is a very key skill. And sometimes if those conflicts are not properly managed or handled properly, right, you see that either a person starts to say, you know, dissociate himself from uh, his own teammates or want mm. to start looking for other green inner pastures hmm. and that's a waste because there could still be huge potential for the person within that particular organization so learning how to handle conflicts is a very critical skill I, I find uh, that amazingly difficult to groom or develop in people because of the initial kind of mindsets that people may have a bit of bias sometimes hmm. people will have towards others etc now when you mention it, I can see it play out in so many times in workplaces, right? And like you said, there are people who leave organizations, buy it on their own accord or they're ousted because of some conflict. But actually, if you look at that person as an individual contributor, they actually provide a lot of value to the organization. But when we look at, let's say, educating the next generation, as far as I know, there isn't any subject or topic called conflict resolution, Right. Actually, there in, in some modules right now in universities and so on, sometimes uh, they would put in probably uh, managing people and so on as, as part of uh, a course self skills. Mm. Yeah, So they, they begin to realize that this what we call horizontal or soft skills or critical core skills and so on, right, uh, mm. is a very important part. I mean, that sets us apart from AI. Uh, so sometimes right, you wonder, uh, um, employers probably also wonder if AI actually has this advantage over people mm. because people are quite volatile sometimes, emotionally mm. quite volatile. I mean, you know, we got on the wrong side a bit. Like, what happened to you? <laughs> right? mm. Why are you, you know, like throwing a tantrum? Mm. Uh, so AI is stable. Yep. Yeah, we can Emotionless. ask any, you know, like 10,000 times and I still give you the answer. Right? Even So it's amazing. I mean, I don't know if you've tried like, you know, criticizing uh, ChatGPT and so on, but, you know, it still remains pretty calm, I It would remains think. in a very chipper mood. Yes, yeah. yeah. So it's amazing, right? And um, that's potentially an advantage if we think hard about that as well. So um, I think as humans, we do need to have emotional intelligence, uh, both internally, that means we need to handle our own emotions uh, emotional regulation properly mm. as well as externally with other people. So at like, you know, the younger ages, because you mentioned that yes, you know, probably in university there are modules that talks about management of organizations and how do you create functional teams and how do you reduce um, conflict and disputes. Let's say the earlier stages, if we're talking about educating children or even um, people who are in like, secondary school what do you think are helpful ways in which we can start learning about conflict resolution? Because I think, you know, right now for this generation of children, I, I often hear stories from friends, right, where the parents in this generation, they're extremely generous towards their children and sort of like, okay, you want anything, I'll like give it to you, especially when both parents are working, then they're more, they, they kind of feel more obliged to give in to the children, especially if they're not spending time with them. And, you know, when we talked about the ease of people having things their way and we kind of factor that into conflict resolution, I don't see that playing out that well. Yeah, I think uh, there was this term called strawberry generation, which I don't quite agree with. Mm. Uh, but still, there's a reason why it appeared, right? And and probably one of the reasons has to do with the fact that 
maybe the the newer younger generation maybe growing up with uh, a lot of things given to them you know served on a platter and so on right but having said that I think you really need to look on a case by case basis um but I think back to your point is that there's a need to also role model for our children. Like I've got three children, my youngest uh, at seven years old. Mm. And so I find it very, very difficult. I mean, as a, a working parent and so on, because, you know, you do have things that you have to, you know, maybe work till late and so on. Mm. And spending time is um, is very difficult with the children. So you got to come up with that time. So very often you say, you know, kind of like, okay, you know, do what I say, don't do what I do, right? Mm. And that's very tough, right? Mm. Um, but for children, especially uh, boys and so on, right, they like to, you know, kind of observe and then model, right? I mean, yeah, for sure, my youngest is modeling uh, all, all his siblings, right, older siblings. So so getting your first one right is important because the oldest will probably role model for the subsequent ones. That's, mm. that's number one. But number two is that as parents, right, we've got to watch our own uh, both attitude, behavior and so on uh, because they are, the kids are actually watching us. They're role modeling mm. uh, or rather we are role modeling for them. Number two is that there's also a need for, especially once the, the children or students hit maybe secondary level, they need to start understanding the dynamics, the psychosocial dynamics of working with people, mm. especially if they get in a group. But I, I sometimes see a lot of students right, being thrown into a project work mm. without fully understanding you know, the, the social dynamics. Like, for example, Tuckman's uh, model, right? How you know you form, then you storm, then you you know perform and so on. So, mm. so the case of um, understanding that whole dynamics of how teams are formed, for example, and then subsequently they adjourn right, to go on to perform even better. Mm. In fact, in a recent course that I taught uh, at undergrad level, right, when we taught them this model, they started to have um, uh, much clearer perspectives on, oh, actually we are now in the storming stage. Right? we got to work through this resolve the conflicts we respect each other we put in some of these rules for ourselves we mm-hmm. say let each other talk have airtime, and then you know we negotiate and then finally reach a consensus right and then with that uh, we move along mm-hmm. um, so, so you see that team formation coming along very very well only because they understood they have to go through all the stages hmm. because prior to that right then you know you just don't understand me I don't understand you okay forget it you know? they just give up you early just, you do your part I do my part we just combine that's it I don't want to talk to you anymore hmm. which is a waste right hmm. um, so just being able to understand that whole psychomotor uh, psychosocial uh, uh, dynamic is critical for them so having enough comfort to work through the difficult parts of the team dynamics yes Mm. And uh, subsequently also identifying the potential leader or leaders in the group, mm. right? Um, and then according the, the due respect and then also observing the rules that they probably come up together, you know, uh, themselves, uh, co-constructing that space for themselves, right? Uh, agreeing to disagree, for example. So once you get past that, right, then then you have reached a certain level of maturity in terms of dealing with people, resolving conflicts, for example. Uh, that's a very critical skill because uh, otherwise right, it sets us um, one step lower right, compared to AI, for example, going forward. yeah, mm. And actually puts us at a, a severe disadvantage as well. Yeah, I think that's a, that's, a, that's a really good point. So apart from conflict resolution as a soft skill, what are some other important soft skills that really stand out if we think about the job of the future because like um, you know even speaking to various people in HR departments like going forward when they recruit there's a definitely a huge shift in terms of weightage away from technical skills which are still important but they are putting more weight on the soft skills. So like you said, conflict resolution, I think we one of them. You just in general they will say that your ability to work in a team. Yes. 
Um, so what are some other soft skills that you think would rank high in terms of priority? Yeah, actually a few. Um, I would mention just two. Uh, one is innovation, right, which many of us probably know, but the other one is, um, I mentioned in my previous uh, discussion with you as well, uh, mm. metacognitive awareness, mm. right? Uh, I'll mention the first one first. Innovation, um, not just in the sense of coming up with like a really solid product and so on. No, having an innovative mind, right, simply means that uh, this person is constantly on the lookout for improvements, right? Improvements to the space, to the processes, even to, um, well, definitely the product itself. But mm. um nothing stays still for this person and, and that becomes potentially if the organization allows this person to then grow in that space and to give him the empowerment, right? Actually, he becomes an asset to the organization. Mm. Um, not many organizations can accept that sort of um, uh, person with an innovative mind, right? You yeah. really have to give that person that space. But uh, once you have that kind of culture, a bit like Google or Amazon and so on, Microsoft, where, where they encourage that kind of innovative mindset, then you will see the organization uh, being able to innovate very, very quickly from ground up. Hmm. Yeah, and I, I would think that there's no other way for organizations to go and to grow because uh, every organization will be running much, much faster with AI and automation as enablers. With regards to innovation, especially maybe even given the Singapore culture and education system that we are, very familiar with this notion to innovate and be creative and think out of the box and things like that. But realistically, even when I speak to peers in, in various industries, sometimes they feel that, like, you know, these are your like, lunch chats, scoopy chats, where they might be talking about the culture at work and they feel strongly that they see that there's something wrong, they're looking to improve on it, but they're their higher-ups are saying like, oh, you know, don't try to change things up, right? Things have always been working this way. So as much as I hear you that it is important to innovate and to have that kind of mindset where you are always looking for improvements, how do you reconcile this two? And I think that's where the ground is, right? So uh, being innovative when coupled with um, knowing how to manage people, hmm. uh, which also simply means that you know when to state uh, an idea and when not to state, right? And just keep our mouth shut, right? Hmm. And that's absolutely critical, right? So the innovative person doesn't just go around babbling <laughs> and so on about their latest ideas and thoughts because it doesn't work that way, hmm. uh, not in the workforce. It's a matter of finding the right time, right moment. Uh, at the same time, so who is the right person that you can talk to, right? If you do want to drive innovations hmm. it could be very subtle very small innovations that you want to test the ground and just want to see whether the other person is receptive or not if you hmm. think that other person is really you know for status quo don't rock the boat then no point right don't waste your ideas it'll be you know uh, ideas thrown on stony ground so to speak you'll not you'll not grow hmm. um, so you got to find the right space as well but internally you got to groom yourself to be an innovative person because you see once the space becomes uh, fertile enough or the ground is good right then you can move into it quickly maybe a lot of people start wondering oh you know with gen uh, generative AI and so on what do I do with it hmm. actually those who have been innovative all this while they jump onto it very quickly and know what to do with it hmm. and it's those who are not so innovative start wondering okay what happened uh? you know, what, mm. what should I do now you know, so they start looking around right? but by then it's a little too late you are behind the curve mm. uh, so having this innovative mindset is simply being ready to embrace um, new things and to be able to apply it mm. having said that right I mean going forward being an entrepreneur could be also part of that career path I think earlier during our conversation you know career seems to be a kind of something that you know people don't quite want to accept nowadays right it's, there's no single 
uh, linear pathway, mm-hmm. right? It could be people hopping from one side to the other side and so on, whether self-employed um, or employed and so on. So you are absolutely right in the sense that uh, being an entrepreneur is a possible pit stop. Hmm. for some people because it sets them free to explore the space. In fact, being an entrepreneur, you probably learn a lot more about yourself. Hmm. How resilient you are and how non-resilient you are as well. Yes. (laughs) So with that in mind, right, it's it's a self-discovery process and with that, then you are a little bit more assured or your next role, your next job, your next task, you can probably perform better. It's more in line with your own values. I think that's where it is. Uh, so that as you grow, mature a little bit more from 30 years old, 40 years old, 50 years old, eventually 60 years and or even close to retirement, mm. you know you have grown as a person fully, mm. right? In your mind, your heart, in your you know values, your persona as well. Mm. Yeah, That makes I, a full person. That. Yeah, I, I love that. And for the third one, the meta-cognitive awareness. Mm-hmm. The meta-cognitive awareness, right, is in terms of growing that or uh, developing that, right, is not too dissimilar compared to innovation as well. i tell you why. Because the metacognitive uh, awareness requires a kind of perspective taking. That means you've got to step outside of yourself to look at yourself. Hey, what have I been doing? You know? hmm. uh, they're kind of reflecting on your own reflections, right? And that means also you've got to keep checking your own assumptions and beliefs, right? Hmm. So innovations are only innovative when an outcome... Is it an outward way versus inward? Correct, yeah. So you, you do need to check in on yourself, like like, you know, your own perspective or something. Because something is innovative when your expectations and outcomes are, are different, mm. right? Then you say, wait, can I do this a little bit better? So you expect something to be done differently and then compare the outcomes, for example. Mm. Uh, so metacognitive awareness, likewise, requires us also to constantly check on ourselves, right? To see if that's what we really want to achieve. Um, so you you constantly have this antenna that's always up to sense the ground, mm. right? And to see, actually, maybe what happened just now wasn't quite what I expected and so on. And you keep reflecting on that, right? Mm. But more importantly, what were my assumptions earlier? Mm. Why did I do that? You know, how come I blew my top just now, right? And mm. so on. Is that really what I want to do? Or is, was it really a justifiable kind of uh, behavior? And once you have that, then you start developing this awareness so that you don't get into potentially erroneous kind of um, space, right? Mm. Where you make errors because you're not aware that you have crossed into a slightly different boundary where the rules are now different. Mm-hmm. See, the error-based learning approach simply means that we start thinking about potential, not just errors when they occur, but also the basis for those errors, right? The beliefs and the assumptions that underpin those errors. Mm. And then that takes on a slightly different level of growth for ourselves. Can you give me an example of when an error-based approach, how it could manifest? Yes. Most of the time, right, um, from the education point of view and so on, we talk about designing errors for our learners to then uh, partake or to uh, experience and then from there they grow. But I kind of realize also it can be possible. So I'll give you two examples. One is that, you know, when you're watching a show, right, before you watch a show, right, uh, you know there'll be, you know, drama and so on in any show, right, whether mm-hmm. it's a movie or Netflix and so on. Mm-hmm. Then you ask yourself, right, what do you think are some of the potential quote-unquote errors or issues that this person or challenges this person, this, the various characters will get into and, and when do I know uh, some of these issues that will crop up? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so as the show progresses, right, keep track of how the show is progressing, how the character is thinking, and can you preempt 
what this character is going to do or say and then when the error is going to quote-unquote happen. Yeah. Uh, I know you kind of say, come on, Michael, you know, like, I'm going to watch the show to enjoy the show. But if you build this up, right, into yourself, your own self-awareness of how things are moving along, actually it becomes very interesting and useful as well. So yes, please enjoy the show by all mm-hmm. means. I'm not asking you to be, you know, masochistic. Mm. But at the same time, uh, yeah, adopt uh, also a self-development kind of perspective when watching shows, right? There's no harm. You can enjoy and still grow yourself. So, so the I guess that instructive question that I asked myself when I'm watching the show, which I already do, by the way, because that's what sets good movies apart from normal movies, right? Because a lot of movies have a very typical storyline. And the interesting shows is when whatever you thought would happen actually doesn't happen. And, 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 and that question that I have to myself is, what is going to happen next? And why do I think that way? Absolutely, yeah. Some of the best movies, right, got such a interesting twist, right? Uh, it may not be at the end; it could be somewhere in the middle, and so on. And that's when you say, "Wait, how come I never thought of that?" Right? And um, especially if it involves uh, very kind of uh, basic human values and beliefs, hmm. uh, then you start thinking, "Wow, you know, I need to start checking myself." And that's why. People say, you know, you watch a movie, it's just for enjoyment. It's not quite true, actually. Uh, we do find people changed. Mm. Bit by bit, they get transformed. So be very mindful what kind of movies you watch, you know, mm. what kind of Netflix uh, or shows and all that. Just be very mindful because it does affect us. How, but then the thing is, as consumers of content, how do we be more mindful? So first up is start thinking about what kind of person you want to be, right? I mean, may not be after the movie, but it could be like five years, ten years down the road. And so with that in mind, then you kind of say, okay, there'll be some movies that I want to watch uh, in particular to, to grow myself. Mm. And there are some movies probably just for fun, laughter, right? You know, and, that, and that's fine. So it is important we check out on the movies. Um, but while the movie is progressing, right, start checking yourself. Wait a minute, you know, are there some values here that you know I need to be mindful of? Mm. So then the metacognitive awareness happens because very often we know mm. errors happen when we least expect them. That's mm. why errors happen. If we already expect them, we won't be making those errors, right? Yep. Yeah, and so this is where sometimes always having an antenna up on and off is very, very helpful. So therein also lies the fact that um, we become quote-unquote experts mm-hmm. when we have this antenna up more frequently because mm. the expert is the one who is able to say, wait, stop, hold on, I think there's something not quite right here. Uh, there's mm. metacognitive awareness mm. and then you start checking, you start regulating yourself to say, no, I think I need to then put in some more muscle to make sure I check properly before I do get into any errors. Got it. Yeah. So I think we covered like good ground here because, you know, when we talked about career pathways for young people, right? We're not just talking about, you know, these are the industries that you need to go into and this is what to avoid. We're not even talking so much about these are the skills that you need to upskill for and this is what to avoid. But I love that we talked about that soft skills part of it and that confluence of first being able to do conflict resolution effectively, being able to work well in teams. Second, which is the innovation part, right? Which, you know, we talked about it's more, you know, how do we look at improvements in, in daily processes, in the way we do things, and sort of like having that mindset, educating yourself about what's new that's going on. Um, and third, that metacognitive awareness, which is not just self-awareness, but a much deeper level of reflecting on why you as individuals like thinking about things but for you know people listening in who like to find out more about 
the work that you're doing and the expanding area of research that you're kind of going into as well as your new book where can they find you? Um, they can find me on LinkedIn of course um, but um, the new book is actually published by World Scientific so if you go to worldscientific.com uh, uh, you can also f- uh, find it there the title of the book is called Designing Errors for Learning and Teaching or Delete D-E-L-E-T-E mm. uh, so published by Michael Choi so just this year just out a few weeks ago Thank you so much and we'll put in the links in the show notes but thank you so much for being on. Thank you so much for having me too. Thank you. you. Many thanks as well to all of you out there for tuning in. This has been a fantastic conversation and we would definitely love to hear what you think about it. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can reach out to us through the email podcast at melisten.sg or at my Instagram at misfitfi. Aside from that, if you enjoy what you're listening to and want to hear more, please help to spread and grow the show by subscribing on Me Listen or Apple Podcasts or by following on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Finally, the Building Financial Fitness Podcast is an original production from Mediacorp and recorded at Scape Live Studios, The Pod, powered by Audio-Technica and City Music. Episode production is done by Junus Yu with editing and support by Danny Cordy and Gareth Fernandez. Once again, I'm your host and BFF, Junus Yu. Until the next time.